And for those who are just now joining us, and perhaps listening outside these walls, listening online or by other means, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning and message entitled, a continuation of last week's, obviously, as I mentioned, but uh, entitled, Therefore Praying. Therefore Praying. And as we look at Matthew chapter number 6, the Lord has already been discussing prayer and giving, and, and I prefer to use the word alms because that's what the text uses, and it gives us a, a better understanding, I think, if we can bring our understanding up to what alms are. We don't really use that word a lot today, but it encompasses so much more than just money. Amen? That'd be a good place to say amen right there. <laughs> it does encompass more than money, and it's not just charitable giving that uh, the Lord looks on. We do things in secret, and our Father rewards openly. And so Jesus has been focusing on the inward portion since he began this so-called Sermon on the Mount. And it's amazing to me to even see the parallels with the Beatitudes in the disciples' prayer, or what's better known as the Lord's Prayer. Because Jesus follows this pattern, I note that he begins with the vertical relationship, and then it extends to the horizontal relationship. And that's a good way, I think, to look at what he's doing to teach here, to teach his disciples. And the Beatitudes, remember those first uh, four Beatitudes, if you count them as eight as I do, those first four really deal with our relationship vertically and then the latter ones horizontally. As we look at the Lord's Prayer, what's known as the Lord's Prayer, really the disciples' prayer is a better way to call it, uh, we see the same pattern. And last week, we began looking at this model prayer, this pattern for prayer, and we noted that it shows us how to address our Heavenly Father. So that gets the vertical Right, doesn't it? And then today we pick up our studies looking at the horizontal relationship that now we, after getting our gaze upon our Heavenly Father, can consider what's going on around us in this earth. And so just to catch everyone up, we learned how to address our Heavenly Father. And uh, I pointed out this is not a universalist type of position that Jesus is promoting, not in any way, shape, or form. We're we're, we believe in a triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're co-equal in quality and essence and character. And so Jesus is just as much God as the Father and the Spirit, and they're all three in one. And so we don't believe in the universal fatherhood of God or the universal brotherhood of man. We do believe that this is written to disciples. And so these are saved people who have been called by Jesus to follow him and have heeded that invitation. And now because they're saved by faith and following Christ, believing in his Messiahship, now he tells, he tells them, these words can be your words. Our Father, and he uses the plural, addressing our Heavenly Father, we see in verses 9 through 10, Jesus gave the pattern for our praying. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We see the person to whom we pray. We note his transcendence. We note his holiness. He's above all and over all, and yet he is pleased to be involved intimately in the affairs of our life down here. One writer, uh, J.G. Whittier's hymn, I pointed this out. He says, I know not where his islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his loving care. And so we address our Heavenly Father. 
Robert Browning, God, thou art love. I build my faith on that. I know thee who has kept my path and made light for me in the darkness, tempering sorrow so that it reached me like a solemn joy. It were too strange that I should doubt thy love. He that spared not his only son, his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? You just can't look at the cross without seeing the love of God. And if we have the cross in purview, there's no way I believe we can ever doubt the love of God because of the tremendous display. When we see that, it's easier to say, thy will be done, not mine. We follow the pattern of our Savior as he prayed, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but as but what thou wilt. The purposes of God then become our priority. We see to whom it is we address our prayers. It is our Father in heaven. And then as we focus on Him in adoration and worship, His purposes become our priority. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We acknowledge His kingdom and the coming of that kingdom and all that that entails. And as that kingdom is on its way, Jesus Christ is coming one day in His second advent in all the fullness and the glory that He'll have. He's going to establish His throne here on this earth and rule for a thousand years. We sang a song this morning that talks about being caught up together with Him just prior to that. And so that's the next thing we look for as God's church on that timeline. Ultimately, He's coming, and He's coming that second time, but prior to that, He's coming to the clouds, and the trump will sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So we're... We're walking in that blessed hope, acknowledging His kingdom that, uh, that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We not only acknowledge His kingdom, but we strive and we pray and we seek the achievement of His will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think this is an interesting way that Jesus is transitioning His listeners to down here. And I do see this as transitory in a sense, but it also is, is the climax of our upward gaze as we pray to our Father which art in heaven. We're asking His will to be done on earth. And it causes us to look around a little bit down here and see what is it that goes on down here that can thwart that, that can hinder that, that can delay that, that can limit God's will being done. The world, the flesh, and the devil all strive to thwart God's will being accomplished on this earth. In heaven, nothing stops God's will being done. But down here, we have real enemies, and it's a real spiritual battle. And so now Jesus begins to draw our attention to what we have here. Robert Law has said, Prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done in earth. I think it was Clarence Sexton in one of his Sunday school lessons. He talks about prayer uh, being not so much so that we can change God, but rather that Prayer can change us. And I think that's what happens when we follow this pattern. When we, when we model our prayers after this model, we think about Him first. And we make sure we're right with Him first. And then our mind inevitably goes to the sorrows and the burdens and the, and the things that we deal with down here. And it brings us into a much better state of mind and state of being to be able to pray according to His will. Because we're not seeking our own. And we'll have confirmation that He's heard us and He's granted our petitions when we pray according to His will. Thy will be done. So as we have 
looked at addressing our Heavenly Father. Now I turn our attention this morning to these next few verses that help us as His disciples know how to address our earthly frailties. Addressing our earthly frailties. We know how to address our Heavenly Father. Now let's consider how to address our earthly frailties. And uh, I'm going to stand on the shoulders of other expositors on this. I'll take their their outline and just kind of tweak it a little bit for our purposes here this morning. But it was one that I couldn't get out of my mind. And hopefully it'll stick in yours just as well as it did as mine. Because that's the whole point of alliteration, isn't it? We don't just litter our sermons with alliteration just so that we can sound pretty. We want to remember what we're talking about. And so if you don't remember anything else, just remember as we look at our earthly frailties, we're praying for our food, our forgiveness, and our fight. And I think that's a good way to summarize it. So notice with me, if you would, as we pray, we are asking the Lord for the food we need to eat. The food we need to eat. The forgiveness that we enjoy. And the fight against evil. Bread. Uh, This would be an instance, I believe, where Jesus is using a word to talk about the whole. And there's fancy language for this, but... Uh, But the wording here, we're talking about bread, this is sustenance, this is our food, this is what we need to live. So we've addressed our Heavenly Father, now we're looking at our frailties. Well, what are we going to eat? I think this is also going to play in very, very soon here to what Jesus is teaching when he says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because in that passage, as we're getting to that moment, Jesus Christ is helping us to not get bogged down with the things of earth. And to not be worried about what we're going to eat and what we're going to drink and wherewithal shall we be clothed uh, for the Gentiles seek after those things. And those that don't know the peace of God are constantly trying to trying to work to make ends meet and working their fingers to the bones. Jesus says, that's already covered. If you have a Heavenly Father, you don't need to worry about any of that. I've used this illustration multiple times, but it's one that, that, that speaks to the point well. I remember very vividly sitting around the table with my grandmother, who's in heaven now, my Mima, if I can call her that, if you'll let me. Uh, That's that's what I know her by, and that's how she knows me. And when I see her in heaven, I'm going to say, hey, Mima, how's it been? And she's going to tell me all about heaven, and uh, and I can't wait for that. But I remember she, she was the one that I told you about last time that worked in the sweatshop in the Depression, sewing with a singer machine, and she's the one that could thread that machine blindfolded with her hands tied behind her back. She was that good at sewing. I'm, I'm, I'm not joking. She was the best seamstress. And, uh, and she was sitting around the table with me one time, and my papa was out working, and we were taking a break because I was getting ready to go back out and help him and sweat some more. And, um, and we were sitting around the table, and she just made kind of a passing comment, but it was one that resonated deep within my heart. I know their background. My my Mimo and Papa got married very young. They almost kind of eloped. They just kind of disappeared and got married, and then they moved out of state and began their family together. And, and uh, there, there's a whole history behind that. So they didn't begin with a lot of what we would you know think about as having family. They didn't have any furniture. They didn't have a home. They didn't have anything. They just had each other. And he went to the city and started to work and, and made ends meet and just, you know, he didn't have... He, He had a sixth grade education, so not a high school diploma. He was a hard worker. My granddad was all his life. And so based on that background, my grandmother sitting there around the table with me making this comment, it meant all the more because I knew the ups and downs. I knew the times when she would be laying her head on her pillow at night wondering, hey, are we going to have something to eat tomorrow? I I just don't even know. One person said, walking by faith is exciting. 
It's okay to live hand to mouth as long as it's God's hand to your mouth. Amen. And so they did that many, many, many years. And so she sat around that table and she said these words, Jason, as long as your, your papa and I have been together, I've never come to this table and ever seen it bare. There's been some times when we've lacked and we've gone without for a lot of other things, but I've never seen this table empty. God has always provided something for us to eat. And then some, you can ask my Uncle J.A., he, he would sit there at that table and clear it. You know, you couldn't let any food go to waste, and his waistline showed it. And so we were blessed. But that comment just meant the world to me. You see, why do we focus on things that the Gentiles seek? We don't need to get worried about what we're going to eat. And so Jesus says, acknowledge that it's from the good hand of God. We're asking the Lord now for the food we eat. Daily reliance. I do believe that back of this, you know, I tell you a little bit of my story, but I think in the hearers of this day, when Jesus gives these words, I think they have another story in the back of their mind that maybe the Holy Spirit would call to their remembrance. A time in their nation's history when they had to depend on God for their daily provision. A day when they would have to get up in the morning and go and gather for that day all of the manna that they would need. And I remember the words of the Lord in John chapter number 6, how he reminded them there that your fathers did eat bread in the wilderness and are dead. Our daily provision comes from God. And as we think about these words of Christ, give us this day our daily bread. He gives it, but we still have an obligation to go gather, don't we? So many times we, we don't look up and see where the blessings come from. And we're guilty of that. We just get up and go through the motions of the day. We don't stop to pause to say, thank you, Lord. My heart's been smitten about this more than once. I'll be candid with you. I wish that I were so you know, spiritual that I could say I never faltered in this. But there have been times when about halfway down my esophagus, the Holy Spirit arrests me and says, don't you swallow anymore until you thank God for that. Now, that's just me. That's my conscience. Maybe your conscience doesn't do that to you as as harsh as mine is on me. I'm just kidding. But I have had to stop mid-bite and pause and say, Lord, forgive me. Because I didn't acknowledge this first, that it came from you. And I bless your name for it. And Jesus blessed and he broke and he gave. So as we sit around the, the meal table, when we, when we have those good things that God blesses us with, let us be kind enough. Let us be thoughtful enough. Let us be thankful enough to at least acknowledge the good hand of our God. As Jesus says here, we ask for our daily bread. If we have not, well, then maybe we didn't ask. I don't know. James tells us that that happens, right? We don't have our prayers answered. The same way manna was only given one day at a time, the disciples rely on daily provision from God. I think this does much to help us continue to grow and develop a continuing conscious dependence on God. There's the old story that's told of a, a man who met a boy in a village street. He was carrying a loaf of bread and he stopped the boy and he asked him where he got the loaf. Well, from the baker, he was the reply. Yes, that's right, but where did he get it? He made it, said the boy. Well, how did he make it? With flour. Where did he get his flour? He ground the corn. Where did he get his corn from? He got it from the farmer? Well, yes, but where did the farmer get his corn? Oh, oh, from God. 
He got it from God, said the boy. Then you got your loaf from God. It's silly to think about, but sometimes we're a lot like that little boy, don't we? We don't go deep enough. We don't go far enough back to acknowledge the good hand of God. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan said, Back of the loaf is the snowy flower. Back of the flower, the mill. Hey, you younger guys don't know what that is. It's, it's a place where they go and they crush corn to be able to make bread. It's a mill. Uh, yeah, M-I-L-L. You can look that up later. Back of the flour is the mill. Back of the mill is the wheat and the shower, the rain, that is, and the sun. And back of that, she came to Morgan and said, it's the Father's will. And I think he's absolutely right. I agree with, with Dr. Morgan on that. So we see, we acknowledge the good hand of God for the food we eat. Now look at what Jesus says about the forgiveness that we enjoy. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. <laughs> I like old J. Vernon McGee. He's a funny guy sometimes if you listen. You have to listen close or you'll miss some of his jokes. Uh, he, was, he was teaching on this passage and he says, In some churches today where there's formal religion, liturgy, and ritual, they use forgive us our debts, while others use forgive us our trespasses. Maybe you've noted that distinction in people saying the Lord's Prayer before. He says, two little girls were talking about the Lord's Prayer as repeated in their churches. And one said, well, we have trespasses in our church. The other said, well, in our church, we have debts. And J. Bernard McGee went on to say, well, they're probably both right. <laughs> as far as the churches are concerned, they both have debts and trespasses. So which one's accurate? Uh, the text is accurate here. Absolutely accurate. Because... The whole idea behind this is sin. Forgive us our shortcomings is how my granddad used to pray. Lord, forgive us our shortcomings and lead us into life eternal, life everlasting. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so whether it's a debt or a trespass, a trespass means you stepped over the line. A debt means you owe something. We understand those terms even today. We don't have to necessarily get out an expository dictionary to know what debts and trespasses are. You trespass, you step over the line. And in uh, Georgia, in the counties that I grew up in, if you did that too long, you might find some rock salt in your backside. Yep, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. Don't trespass in private property. We need to protect what's ours. Well, I digress. Yes, back on target here. I'll sink in in a minute. <laughs> Debts and trespasses. Forgive us. This takes humility. It is pride that stands in the way of acknowledging where we have fallen short. And may we continue to walk humbly. This humility begins by acknowledging everything that we have is from the good hand of God above. And then that draws us to ourselves to consider how wretched we are. What a worm am I in light of how good and glorious he is. I not only consider my shortcomings, but then I have to consider my relationships with others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive, release, not hold anything against those that are debtors to us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'd love to hear my mortgage company say that someday. (laughs) Forgive us our debts. You're free. No more mortgage. Well, trespasses. I don't want to be guilty of meddling here, but if you would get along with the Holy Spirit of God, I'm convinced if there's anything between you and anybody else, He's going to show that to you. 
You don't need a preacher to come point that out to you. You don't need your pastor to come say, well, you need to go get right with so-and-so. The Holy Spirit can do that just fine. And in fact, he does it better because he knows what I can't know. And so if there's a burden you have, if there's a face maybe that you're seeing even right now in your heart and mind, let me encourage you, get alone with the Lord. Leave your gift at the altar and go get right with them if it's possible. The pastor, it was so many years ago, they're not even alive anymore. Why don't you take that burden to the God who understands and cares? And even though your voice might not be able to reach them, I read in the Bible where Jesus spoke into an empty, just an empty nothingness where death loomed, and he called a man out from that place so his voice can penetrate even where yours cannot go. And if you'll have faith to believe that he can, he can take that burden, then you can cast your care on him because he cares for you. And even if they're beyond your voice, you can be right with God and right with others with a clear conscience if you'll let the Lord carry that for you. He's big enough, and he's powerful enough to do that. If they're still available and you can talk with them, I would encourage you, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Do whatever it takes to get right. Whatever humility needs to happen, maybe take 150% of the blame for whatever happened before and just make sure you're right with God and right with your fellow person because then you can move on and think about a greater spiritual fight you know, many times we never make it to this depth because we can't get past all the offenses just between ourselves and between God. Well, I've, I've asked forgiveness too many times. First John 1, 9 still in the Bible will always be in the Bible. It is infinitely in the Bible. It will forever be there. You can, you'll never exhaust the forgiveness of God. You'll never exhaust His faithfulness. It's right for Him to forgive you every time you ask. That's the lie of the devil that would say you've asked forgiveness one too many times. Now, don't take advantage of his grace and goodness because John also says there's a sin of the death. We pray not for that. And that's a very hardened person that comes to that place and only God knows when they're there and it's his prerogative to call them home. But if we're breathing, we're a candidate for forgiveness. If we are alive, God has grace for us and his arms are open and he calls us to him to be right. Forgive us our debts. Well, I, don't, I can't think of any debts I have to God. Let's set up a counseling appointment after the service. I don't have time to deal with that right now, but we need to talk. And if you have that mindset, and there's plenty of debts that we have against God, just start going down the list of the commandments. It won't be long, probably after the first one, if you're honest. You can't even make it past that one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Somewhere along the way, things tend to dethrone God, and they take over His place in our heart, and we start giving deference to those, and, well, we've already lost it there. Forgive us our debts. This word also reminds me of what Christ said. We sang this earlier in that Jesus Christ said from the cross, it is finished, paid in full. That debt can be forgiven because it was put on Jesus Christ. And he died in our place as though he were us for us. And we can come boldly into the throne of grace free, not as, not as debtors any longer through Jesus Christ. We move on here, and I hasten to consider this last part, our fight against evil. So we ask the Lord to help us with, our, with the food that we eat, with the forgiveness that we enjoy, forgiveness vertically, excuse me, forgiveness horizontally. Now consider with me our fight against evil. Verse number 13, the Bible says, Lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When we compare scripture with scripture, we see that God does never tempt anyone with evil to the point where he solicits them to do evil. But when we study the scriptures, we do find out that the Lord tests and proves and he brings us through trials to test our faith. Here we're being told by our Lord and Savior to ask God to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. There's a good argument here that uh, this is the substantival use of the, the, the adjectives on the word evil. And I won't get into semantics here and debate that with you this morning. But I do, I do think that there's good ground for arguing that we have a very real enemy. And if we were to say, Lord, deliver us from the hand of Satan, deliver us from the devil, I think that would be an appropriate prayer based off this verse. Deliver us from evil. The temptation comes not only outside of us, but the temptation many times is within us. And there's nothing in us uh, which temptation couldn't appeal to. We're, we're drawn away after our own lust and enticed. Every person is, James tells us. And so as we get into these circumstances, let's remember, remember God never leads us anywhere that he's not with us to help us through the temptation. In every single one of us, there is some weak spot somewhere along the way where we're, where we're infirmed. And that weak spot is exactly where the devil will put in his crosshairs. That weak spot is where he will solicit us to do evil time and time again. And he hits us just when we're least expecting it in the weakest part of our being. This vulnerability is in every single one of us. There is not one of us in this room today that is exempt from this vulnerability. The weakness might be different in you than it is in me, but there's a weakness nonetheless. There was a playwright that wrote a, a play long ago called The Will, and Mr. Devises, he was a lawyer. He noticed an old clerk who had been in his service for many years, and this clerk was looking ill, and he asked him if anything was the matter, and the old man uh, told him that his doctor had informed him that he was suffering from an incurable and ultimately fatal disease. Listen to how the play unfolds here. Mr. Devises says, rather uncomfortably, I'm sure it's not what you fear. Any specialist would tell you so. Mr. Surtees, without looking up, I've been to one, sir, yesterday. Mr. Devises says, well, Surtees says, it's that, sir. Mr. Devises says uh, to that, he couldn't be sure. Surtees, yes, sir. He couldn't be sure about it, yes. Well, an operation, surely you can have an operation. Too late for that, he said. If I had been operated on long ago, I, I might have had a chance. But you didn't have it long ago. Well, not to my knowledge, sir, but he says it was there all the same, always in me, a black spot, not, not as big as a pin's head, but just waiting to spread and destroy me in the fullness of time. That seems just completely unfair. I, I don't know, sir. He says there's a spot of that kind pretty nigh in all of us, and if, if we don't look out, it does us, it does for us in the end. No, no, no. He called it the accursed thing. I think he meant that we should know of it 
and, and be on the watch. In each one of us, there is a weak spot. There is a vulnerability. And if we are not on the watch, that very weakness is what will ruin us and bring us to our demise. Somewhere in us, there's a flaw. Somewhere in us, there's a fault of temperament. There's that infirmity of the flesh. But I'm thankful that the Scriptures remind us it is by His stripes we are healed. And though our infirmities He bore in His flesh, He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Our Savior did for us what no one else could do, and He truly is the great physician. And one day, one day, sin will be completely eradicated from this old tabernacle, this, this frame this mode of transportation I have here below, and I'll be glorified, I'll be with my Savior. But we must be mindful that until that glorification happens, the moment I'm not looking, the moment I think everything's okay, it's just the moment where the devil's like, okay, now it's time to work. Now there's a difference between that and I believe what James talks about, working our patience out. And I've talked to people that say, Pastor, please don't pray for more patience for me. I understand. Completely understand. But the Bible does say, count it all joy. When you fall into diverse, what's the word? Temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And so how do we reconcile that with Jesus telling us to pray to our Father, lead us not into temptation, and yet James, as his pastor's heart, tells us, he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. We're to ask the Lord not to lead us into, into the realm of the wicked one, into his hands and into his clutches, but we are to recognize when testing comes from above, because through that, God molds us and he burns the dross off of our life. And as we sing in that song, uh, will come forth as gold because He burns all of that off. So when we pray, deliver us from evil, we're again admitting our inability to deal with Satan's attacks in our own strength. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I want you to turn and look at these verses with just the moments I have remaining. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer or permit or allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation. Underline or circle or put a box around, highlight the word with. Next time you read that verse, I want you to ponder the word with. Because it says God is with you in the temptation. And He is the one that will make the way to escape that you may be able to bear it. May be able. That means there could be a chance that you won't. If you don't lean on Him and if you don't take His way out and He's with you, if you quench the Holy Spirit, then there's a possibility you could buckle because you're not relying on the Lord's strength, you're on your own. And so this petition acknowledges not just evil in the abstract, as I mentioned, but also the evil one himself, the devil who tempts people to commit sin. And so we see part of this prayer is assurance. Lord, you're going to take care of me in this. You're going to walk with me through this. Powerful as the devil might be, he is no match for Almighty God. This was a great comfort to me when I realized it. The devil is powerful, but he is not omnipotent. I think it was in Michael Bear's book where I, I first came to that thought and really, really pondered that through. 
Yeah, the devil is powerful, but he's not omnipotent. There is a limit. The devil is smart, and he's very wise, but he is not omniscient. He cannot read my mind. He can only put thoughts in and watch my response. We're in spiritual warfare. John chapter 17, verse 15, our Lord said this in his prayer, his high priestly prayer for us. I pray not that thou, the Father, shouldest take them, his disciples, out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from, listen now, the evil. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 3, the Bible says, But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from, listen now, evil. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Bible says, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. One who is delivered from evil is then freed in their life to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Turn over there and read verses 22 to 25. Because this shows us how God brings us out and brings fruit into our life. And as I've done before, I'll do it again here. When you read the word fruit, it is singular. I've verified this over and over. Every time I look at this verse, I go look it up again and make sure that it's still singular in the Greek. And every time I do, it's always singular. And so it's still one fruit. So either you have it all or you have not the fruit of the Spirit. You might have eight out of nine of these. But if you're even lacking one, you don't have the whole fruit. Because it's a singular fruit. And so it's all or nothing, really, and that's how powerful it is. So look at the list and see if the fruit, singular, is there. Are there any areas where you don't have this fruit? Do you have love? Agape love. Do you have uh, love in action? Do you have joy? Do you have peace? Do you have long-suffering? Do you have gentleness? Do you have goodness? Do you have faith? Meekness, temperance. If any of those are missing, right? If they're not there, then you don't have the whole thing. Against which, against such, Paul says, there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so do we constantly wear the whole armor of God going back to Friday night? We got to watch the guys put on some armor and run around crazy in the auditorium over that own one. They had a relay race and they had to suit up in armor and the, the pastors, we were really concerned for them that they were going to start sword fighting in the back of the auditorium, you know, trying to beat each other. But they did fine and they won the race. But I did think that thought as they were suiting up in that armor. I thought, you know, that's what I have to do every day. I have to actually put this armor on, and I have to suit up in the whole armor of God. And if I neglect that, then I walk out vulnerable. I walk out with a weakness. Maybe I get, you know, most of the armor on, but I miss that one, and that's where the devil hits me. Are we walking with the whole armor of God, able to stand against the wiles of the devil? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I won't take time to do this this morning, but... On the heels of praying this, Jesus then explains a little bit more on the aspect of forgiveness. And he gives us the fundamentals of forgiveness. We are forgiven by forgiving. 
And the unforgiven, the unforgiven is the unforgiving. If you can't forgive, Jesus has some further explanation on that. I think he comes back to that because that's probably a bigger weakness in most people than, you know, like Job, he did battle with the devil in the first two chapters of that book, and then you don't see the devil anymore. We can we can deal with that. We can go to God. We can take care of those things. And But when it comes to the bitterness that's in us, the forgiveness that we need to give, I think that's why Jesus comes back to it, because he needs to explain and expound a little bit further. We forgive to be forgiven, but Paul says we forgive because we're forgiven, right? Because of what Christ did for us. Now let me put it together. I'm out of time. And I love our services. We have great music and we have tremendous time worshiping and singing and, uh, and being able to worship together. But let's not cut short the preaching. And so hold on just for a moment. Let me give you some things to take home with you to ponder on as we put all this together. As we look at Matthew chapter number 6, let me encourage you, don't ever be guilty of using prayer to try to get attention. He says pray in secret. Don't go to the street corner and lift up these long prayers. Remember he was talking about the Pharisees there? Don't use your prayers to try to get attention. That would be to make a grave mistake. It's a private communion, but we also pray corporately, don't we? That's what the Lord's Prayer is. It's public. It's, it's plural there. But we also pray in secret first. We pray in our closet. And so our private prayer life is strengthened. And we don't use prayer to get attention. The power of prayer is based on the quality of your prayer, not the quantity. It's not how many words you can use. It's not how many times you can repeat yourself on certain phrases. It's the quality. Are you connecting with God? Are you being heard by Him? Can He actually look down and be pleased in your prayer? Or are you just... So this goes back to my message to you about who's really hearing your prayers. Are others hearing your prayers only? Are, are you hearing your prayers? Are you praying so that it will calm your own spirit? Or is the Father hearing your prayers? The latter is the most important. The Father is the one who needs to hear our prayers. And that's based on quality, not quantity. There's a story told about missionaries that went over to Hawaii. And, uh, and the, the, the tribal people that were there, the priests that would go into the temple, they would sit out for hours, sometimes days, uh, meditating and, and bringing themselves to a place where they could feel like they could walk into their temple and so when the Christian missionaries showed up in Africa, they had a special, or uh, Hawaii, excuse me, they had a special word that they called them. I can't remember what it was. But they called them this, and it was derogatory at first because the Christians would come and they would just pray this brief prayer, and that was their prayer. And, and the, the priests that were there, the pagan priests, couldn't understand why they didn't take hours and why they didn't go through these big rituals because, well, they just got a hold of God. And they prayed. And so it's not the quantity. It's not how much or how long or, or how drawn out it is. It's the quality. The heart of prayer is found in worship. Are you worshiping the Lord when you pray? Our Father which art in heaven. We pray not just privately but corporately. As a church, we learn how to pray together. And our Wednesday night prayer meetings are precious times to do this. The fifth thing that I would share with you is that our concern ought to be with the things of God before we start to deal with our own needs. Are we coming to Him first? 
And are we getting right vertically so that then we can focus more clearly on what's going on around us? We focus on what He wants before we start asking what we want. Right? Sixth, we bring all of our personal needs to God in total dependence on Him. We're dependent. Without Him, we have nothing. And we acknowledge His good hand. Seventh, and this is the number of completion and I'm done. God's community. If we're going to be part of His people, part of His church, then really that's all about forgiveness. And there's much to forgive, I understand. There's things that hurt all along the way. But as Jesus taught us, we can live right this way and it will help us live right this way. And let us keep that spirit of love among us, that spirit of forgiveness, not carrying grudges. I saw on the Second Baptist Church of Dallas a sign one time when I was a teenager, driving by Dallas, Georgia, that is. It is on the map. Yes, a Second Baptist. There's a First Baptist too. Second Baptist of Dallas, Georgia. <laughs> it said a grudge is the heaviest thing to carry. You ever seen something like that on a church marquee sign? A grudge is the heaviest thing to carry. And that's true. Uh, it is. And so God's community is all about forgiveness it's all about reconciliation. As we look at how we're to minister in this world, let's do so as God's people who are bearing truly the fruit of the Spirit. And if you'll seek the Lord on that, He'll show you areas of weakness. He'll show you areas where you're, you might not be trusting Him like you should. But what a model. As we pray, let's make sure we, we follow the right pattern. Going back to that illustration. When I do woodworking, if I don't have a template, it's not pretty when I get done. It's not. Anything that I do, I, I like to have a pattern for, and Jesus gave me this pattern. And it's helped me in my prayer life to be able to know what I'm doing when I pray. Whether I just say the words that He gave, there's nothing wrong with that, just so long as it doesn't become vain repetition. You can say these words until it sinks in. If that's what it takes, then do that. But... I hope that you'll grow to the place where you can take it and follow the model and cut within those lines and be able to go to God and be right with Him and then focus on the needs that are around you. It will take time to follow that pattern. It will take care to make sure you're doing it the way the Savior prescribed and not be guilty of vain repetitions or just the babblings that people think are lucky charms that are going to help them and, and, and help their immediate need. Prayer is not a lucky charm. Prayer is our communication line with the throne room of heaven moving the omnipotent hand that governs the, governs the universe. I think it was A.W. Tozer said that. So let's be people who can move things because we're able to see God move because He's moved us. Prayer changes me. It changes me.